Well, greetings, friends. Wow, it has really been way too long away from the podcast, but I am back and I am overjoyed to be here with you for another episode of the Dance Sessions podcast. To all my new listeners or my not-so-old old listeners, my name is Chris McCartan. I'm a professional dancer, mover, creator, and just all-around lover of art and dance. In this podcast, I will discuss topics about movement, movement quality, dance history and information, tips on how to navigate the dance industry. Oh, and did I mention dance history? (laughs) Just like today's episode. I think dance history is a very interesting topic, and I myself am learning about it every day. And I would like to share with you that knowledge that I pick up from multiple different sources in multiple different areas. And I think any dance enthusiast, any dance teacher, dancer, and just any human in general can learn from and find value in. Now, just a little bit about my dance training. I have trained in many, many well-known styles of dance for over 11 years now. Whew. From hip-hop and grooves to classical ballet styles and technique. I believe that the best working dancers are the ones that can be molded and shaped between the different styles that they take part in with ease. And dancers that can show respect, commitment, and passion and love for each individual style that they do. A dancer that can hit a clean line or a smooth groove, but can also convey a story and an emotional connection with every piece of music they dance to. Now, I'm no expert by any means. I am currently 20 years old, and I have been living in Phoenix, Arizona with my beautiful mom and family, just waiting out the crazy, crazy times that we are all taking part of. So I am right there with you all. I know that this time has definitely given us some ups and has definitely given us some downs, me included. But I will tell you this, I have continued to train and I love what I do and I've been taking many, many classes over Zoom, over different streaming platforms uh, that I can list in the show notes below. But I absolutely love taking part of any type of dance situation that I can and I like to train as much as possible as much as my body will allow. Now, with that said, on this show, my goal is to educate you and to take you along my personal knowledge journey, I call it, from all the experience that I've already acquired, the experience that I'm currently in the midst of creating and experiencing, and seeing some projections for what the future may look like for our industry. Because I think that We are a very, very important piece of the future of what's going to happen for our industry. And if we want to see things change and get better and stronger and more creative, we have to put our best foot forward to understand what I personally love to talk about, which is dance history. We have to know where it came from. We can't embark on a new dance revolution to expand our art form without knowing the origins In today's episode, we will dive into the life of an absolute choreographic genius, a gone but never forgotten name that all dancers, especially ballet dancers though, I'm looking at you guys, should know from the jump, George Balanchine. Now, I will refrain from using any hyperbolic and exaggerated terms such as great and genius because I know from my readings about George 
that he would be looking down from the dance heavens and going, Chris, don't use such words about me. So I promise I will do my best. But he really is something else. He is incredible. This Russian-born creator of some of the most important, if not the most important wave in the evolution of American ballet is what drew me to his story. Without George, I personally don't think that we would know what ballet is in America unless another person like George had come along. We're going to be taking a look at what led him on his journey to America in the first place to establish the New York City Ballet and all of the companies that happened before and after. I will have a list of great sources I used to learn about Balanchine because I did not go it alone, and all of those sources will be listed in the show notes for you guys to browse and read at your own leisure as well, one of which is a biography that I listened to and read, which was beautifully written by Bernard Taper. Now, without further ado, sit back, relax, or stretch your splits, stretch your feet, whatever you got to do, and hear how George's story is like many dancers' story. It is filled with ups and downs, twists and turns, and unparalleled situations that George was involved in where he had to take many, many risks and take chances, which eventually led him to finding his true purpose for his art and exploring his passion. Now, just to start off on a really good note, as Balanchine would say about destiny, life is not to be known or understood. We must live in the present. Here we go. Georgi Melitonovich Blanchvads was born on January 22nd in 1904 in St. Petersburg, Russia. At the time, Russia was in what they called the early stages of the Russian Revolution, which made for much unrest, being it civil unrest, societal unrest, and changes in leadership. Georgi Melitonovich Blanchvads was the son of Meliton Blanchvads, who was a talented composer known as the Georgian Glinka and little is known about his mother's former life. I did read on one biography that his mother was fond of ballet and thought it would help with social advancements in St. Petersburg at the time. His father was 11 years her senior and was Melaton's second wife. Georgie was a middle child of three. He had a younger brother, Andre, and an older sister, Tamara. Although early on his family didn't make much money, I mean, his father being a composer, you can imagine, his father had stumbled across a substantial fortune, which led them to move from their small flat to a large home several hours northwest of where they currently lived. This gave Georgie and his siblings more space to roam, to grow up, and to play. <laughs> Unfortunately, this house was one of the only fortunes the family was able to enjoy. Family and friends had kind of told them that they should open a business or do something like that, and I believe it was a restaurant they tried to open, and this restaurant did not do well, and much of the Blanchvad's money was lost in this endeavor. Georgie was a boy who valued and appreciated feminine beauty from a very young age, which explains why he ended up marrying four, I think four or five of his ballerinas he worked with later on in his journey. But I digress. <laughs> the next chapter in this story of Balanchine's is why I think everything just kind of falls into place without warning and without planning. At nine years old, Georgie was brought along with his sister Tamara to the, her audition for the Imperial School of St. Petersburg. 
His sister did her audition, but oddly enough, Georgie was also swept in to audition. Unlike him, his sister already really loved ballet and wanted to be a ballerina. While Georgie's interests lied in composing music, like his father, playing piano, and possibly pursuing a military career. In Russia, the occupation of being a male ballet dancer was a highly respectable one at the time, which I think is quite interesting to think about in terms of where that position may fall today in Russia or any other country, because I think it would probably be a little different. We're still, uh, still striving to make dance be a very respectable, honorable position. Young George had his audition, which was more of a health and wellness test with some some more fitness-like testing and shows of character and of poise. And of the eight or nine other boys that auditioned, he was the only one that made it through. Unfortunately for his sister, she did not make the cut. By getting accepted into the Imperial School, this now meant he would be spending almost all of his time exclusively living here and breathing the arts, as well as receiving an education outside of dance, which his mom really cared about. His first role in a ballet was as the little Cupid in The Sleeping Beauty at the school. This was in his second year, and he performed The Garland Waltz. At 10 years old, this moment of seeing the theater, the amazing talent, and the atmosphere ballet brought, I think is what began his love affair with dance. He admired the amazing dancers that he trained with at his school, and he trained hard for many, many years there. He was a little shy and mysterious from what I gather, and... He was very isolated from his classmates, but he had respect for everyone and all of his teachers, so that wasn't the issue. He just was kind of a mystery to people. Another unexpected turn in Georgie's early development was the closure of the Imperial School in 1917. For several months, he had to find work as a pianist in the cinema and many other odd jobs, but the ballet never stopped. His first work he choreographed was called Le Nuit. I think that's how you say it. His early pieces were danced pretty experimentally by him and his peers at the state school. Some of his works then were Le Bouffe sur le Tot and a scene for Caesar and Cleopatra. After some years into his early 20s, he, along with Alexandra Danilova, Tamara Gevergeva, and Nicholas Efimov, left the Soviet Union to travel to Germany, London, in other places in Europe. This was Balanchine's and all of his friends' way of being able to leave Russia with the hopes of moving forward with their careers and hopefully never having to return. Imagine it's kind of like a 18, 19, or 20-year-old moving from their hometown to a big city like L.A. or New York. This is a big move and a big change, but even imagine the time period back then and how difficult it was to leave. And you're not only leaving state to state, but you're leaving your entire country. So this was a very big deal. Balanchine and his troupe of dancers referred to themselves as the Soviet state dancers. And in the early stages of their travels, they really struggled. I mean, let's be real. They're young they're dancers, so they're trying to find as much work as possible, but it was not going to be an easy journey for them, but it's always worth it, and Balanchine understood this. Also, just another side note, George's name was changed early in his life to George Balanchine 
by Deglev, who we'll dive into in just a moment. In this time of struggle as a foreigner, traveling amongst different countries, a great connection and bond was finally made for Balanchine. Balanchine met ballet impresario, ballet owner, also Russian, Deglev. He offered Balanchine employment as his ballet master at his Ballet Russis in Paris. I hope I'm saying that right. He worked with the very rough around the edges Deglev at the Monte Carlo Theater, creating and working on ballets such as Romeo and Juliet in May of 1926, La Pastorale also in 1926, Jack in the Box, all leading up to the amazing ballet Apollo, which was in collaboration with Balanchine's musical friend and mastermind Stravinsky, who he kept close for most of his career. After the sad death of Serge Digalev due to diabetes in 1929, the 25-year-old Balanchine was once again left in another holding period of trying to find work and trying to continue his artistry. Because Balanchine was not Digalev's successor, he had a case of pneumonia that kind of took him away pretty hard for, I think it was about six or seven months. Serge Lafar, or Sergei Lafar, took over for him to fill the role at the Ballet Russis. And although Balanchine was supportive of his friend, this eventually led to George being let go a couple, like about a year or so later, I think, as the master, and once again left trying to find other endeavors. And you have to remember as well, all the while, George was just still this this kid, really, this foreigner in a foreign place trying to find work. So it was not exactly the easiest. And in today's society as well, this is something that we all can learn from and that we all face is having to keep fighting no matter what, no matter what's in front of you. So that's just something to remember is Balanchine had such a fighting spirit to keep his his journey going. And through this this phase of ups and downs we keep talking about is something I picked up from a group of friends and they'll know it when they hear it and it's called That's Just Showbiz. Before Balanchine's dismissal, George was able to pull off a great ballet with new ballerinas called Cotillion in 1932, which was pretty groundbreaking. And this is where Balanchine's American start would begin with a newfound friend from Rochester, New York, who traveled to meet Balanchine in Europe. This man was named Lincoln Kirstein. Lincoln Kirstein was an intelligent man who for most of his life had no real affiliation with dance, but had always had an interest in the arts. He had first seen Deiglev's Ballet Russis in London when he traveled there at around 17 years old. He grew up in Boston and graduated from Harvard. He showed amazing work in his literary magazine called Hound and Horn. An interesting turn of events was when Kirstein had accidentally stumbled into Serge Deiglev's funeral procession back in 1929. And this moment was almost a moment where I think Lincoln knew that he must focus his work and energy on ballet. It all had kind of come full circle, and he had always had this burning interest to, you know, find a choreographer and bring classical ballet styles to America. So, in 1933, that's exactly what he did. Lincoln met George and told him he wanted to bring him to America to create ballets. And George's famous response was, yes, but first a school. 
In October of that year, Balanchine arrived and took America by storm, uh, eventually. <laughs> True to his word, the School of American Ballet on Madison Avenue was born on January 2, 1934, with classes beginning the very next day. The school would serve as the Classical Ballet Academy, training dancers in the traditions of ballet, with faculty led by Balanchine, with Pierre Vladimirov, Dorothy Littlefield, and Muriel Stewart all added on to the roster as the years went on. This was a very important institute of dance, with America really lacking a true ballet, you know, ballet training center and a ballet, the roots were not, not with America quite yet. And to give credit where it's due, not only did Balanchine and Kirstein help open the school, but also with the help and aid of Edward Warburg. Fast forwarding to June of 1934, Balanchine's first ballet was made in the U.S., and it was called Serenade. It was performed for a friend of Lincoln's, Edward Warburg's father, in White Plains, New York, by a group of students Balanchine was working with. There's also a famous picture. <laughs> I'll try to find it, and I may post it in the next couple of days, but there's an amazing picture of Balanchine working with this group of dancers of, you know, just this ragtag group of dancers working on the beach in New York somewhere. It's It's amazing. They're all you know, just wearing their street clothes, but they're all training in ballet to get this, uh, get this style right. And this performance led to the forming of the American Ballet Company, which years later found their temporary home of the Metropolitan Opera. Notably, this was a hard pairing at the opera with the orchestra and the dancers. This would be the first time that the singers would not appear front and center, but singing in the pit, and then eventually, through some arguments between Balanchine and the board later ended up back on stage. So the singers were back on stage just off to the side so that the dancers could perform. Balanchine's first ballet there was known as The Bat, I think it was called. And it was a hectic creation done pretty quickly to music that the orchestra already had in their repertoire and they already knew. It was at the Metro that ballets like Card Game and Orpheus and Eurydice would be performed. This period of stability unfortunately would not last long due to the Metropolitan Opera disbanding, which forced the company to leave. I think it had something to do with a lost investor or lost funding, and it all contributed to them disbanding. All the while, George was spending time at the school and stepping onto the Broadway stage to choreograph pieces of shows. Overall, George created, I think it was 19 Broadway shows in his entire career. Shows like Cabin in the Sky, on Your Toes, and Louisiana Purchase. He also spent time in Hollywood working with Sam Goldberg on many pictures, famously when he worked with his soon-to-be wife, Vera Zarina, in The Goldwyn Follies. Now, while on the subject of love and relationships, I didn't want to dwell and highlight his personal business because I did not feel that George would appreciate it. But, if I do say so myself, George was a bit of a ladies' man and a bit of a magnet. His love for dance made him fall in love with those he danced with and those he worked with. He married five times, and each each relationship was with one of his leading ladies, one of his ballerinas. And he also had had, like anybody else, small romantic relationships throughout his career, all being something and someone involved in his work. And some could say these women were his muses. 
From what I can tell, he just loved everything about his dancers, and let's just say it showed in his work. All right, back to business. The famous New York City Ballet, as we all know, took many, many years to come to fruition. It was, and you can almost say it was decades in the making. In 1941, a company originally called the Ballet Society was formed with a big following and finally was able to settle in with the New York City Opera as the New York City Ballet on the city center stage. It is here that the first ballet, Concerto Barocco, had started the long, impactful trail of ballets to come from 1948 and onward. Great dancers like Diana Adams, Maria Tallchief, and more graced this stage building those important foundations on which American Ballet and New York City Ballet stood on to this day. The ballets that followed were Firebird, La Valse, Scotch Symphony, and one ballet that every dancer, and especially ballet dancers, know and cherish, The Nutcracker. In 1954, George worked on his first full-length work for the New York City Ballet, and it was truly what put the institution on the map. It was a really fun theatrical work that really hadn't been done before. It had children from his school alongside some incredible principal adult ballet legends, all together in an amazing plot with beautiful movement, sets, and costuming. And a fun little thing is that Balanchine, George himself, was actually in the Nutcracker. He was in the televised version, and he played Godfather Drosselmeyer. You know, the guy that gives, you know, the beloved Clara her Nutcracker, Crazy eye patch. Yeah, well, you know, you catch my drift. By the late 1950s, Balanchine had set the tone for ballet and the style he had helped cultivate. Balanchine was proud and happy to live in the United States of America and often expressed his animosity or uneasiness with returning to Russia. George was a big fan of Western movies, if you can believe it, and he expressed his love for America in his works Stars and Stripes, Western symphonies, and other works using American composers like Charles Ives. By 1964, the big stage Balanchine had had in mind for all those years was finally his when the New York City Ballet relocated to the Balanchine-approved and designed New York State Theater at the Lincoln Center. It was really a dream come true for him. Through his years, one thing Balanchine said really caught my eye, and it'll stick with me forever. When he talked of his ballets, he said, Ballets are like butterflies. Who wants to see last season Butterfly? Balanchine was consistently and always breaking barriers with his work, but critics over the years were not always so kind. First, it was when he arrived to America. The critics were saying ballet needed to find an American choreographer, he's too European, or his ballets are too different or experimental and go against the typical norms that they saw from other touring groups. And even with all of this criticism and all this feedback from the critics, who, mind you, all respect to the critics, but let's be honest with ourselves, they're not the ones choreographing and dancing either. So it's it's a bit of a tough crowd there, a bit of a tough crowd. But through all this, Balanchine powered on, and he worked with people like Martha Graham and Concertino, showcasing her modern work and eventually working with Jerome Robbins, who Balanchine was good friends with. All these different people and influences seeped into Balanchine's creations and remastery of his older works. He, from what I know, he didn't want ballet to be the same. 
He didn't want his works to go by being, like he said last season's butterfly. He wanted it to be unexpected. He wanted it to be spontaneous, but he expected his dancers to act with full knowledge, to have the precision, and often the speed. One ballet called Agon, or Agon, was so very different, and some of that had to do with the partnership of Balanchine and his musical friend from Russia, Igor Stravinsky. There's great photos from these rehearsals that took place, and it seems in one of them that Stravinsky is almost instructing George on how his dancers should dance the pieces. They both understood the traditions of what they knew and loved about ballet in this neoclassical style that was coming to America after all those years of working together. And their collaborations just really worked well, and they produced magic. Another interesting philosophy held by Balanchine, as well as in some ways Stravinsky, was the meaning behind their works, or the lack thereof. Stravinsky has said, music can express nothing, it can express itself only. In these great works they did together, they didn't want a story to rule the work, but they rather wanted to allow the audience to take it in fully, by showcasing whatever the music and dance seemed to express. In different ballets, though, where the plot was essential to the ballet, were works like Don Quixote and Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. Balanchine worked with some amazing dancers like Mikhail Baryshnikov, Jackie's or Jake's D'Ambroise, who later would choreograph for the New York City Ballet and would go on to be a legend of his own. Although Balanchine was extremely tough on his dancers, sometimes even standoffishly tough, he helped them achieve greatness and helped them live out their dreams. By the 1980s, George had received much acclaim when given the Kennedy Center Honors Award in 1978 and was nominated for other primetime Emmys. The mission he had set out to do was finally seemingly coming to an end, and he was finally able to achieve all that he had dreamed of. He was applauded the few times he returned to Russia to tour as well, and he visited his brother Andre, whom he remained in touch with since his sister had passed. Balanchine was finally able to, almost in a way, was finally able to return to Russia with all of his works that he was proud of, and to be kind of like, okay, I did something, you know? But when the inevitable time came for Balanchine's end, his dancers all came to visit him in the hospital with questions, touching moments, and even a mini-rehearsal or two. Balanchine was suffering from angina pectoris, I think it was called, even after he had undergone a heart bypass surgery. This left many wondering who would take his place. Would it be Peter Martins, one of his dancers, or Jerome Robbins, or someone else? In the end, the New York City Ballet was led by both Robbins and Martins. Balanchine was content with all he had done and believed that his work didn't need to be continued on or memorialized, but rather built on, like he had done for all those decades. George wanted the neoclassical style he had helped America learn and develop, and he wanted it to evolve and take on a different shape and a different meaning. He wanted his work to continue, but if it was to continue, he wanted it to be different. At 79, George Balanchine died on April 30th, 1983, in New York from Kreutzfeldt-Jacob disease, which was finally diagnosed after his death. They were still unsure. The New York City Ballet, to this day, 
is one of the greatest and most influential companies, in my opinion, for ballet dance. And it's all thanks to George, to Lincoln Kirstein, and to all of his friends along the way, and for all their hard work and dedication to their making their dream a reality. Thank you so much, George, for your legacy and your innovative spirit. You're gone but never forgotten. All right, friends, thank you so much for taking the time today to listen, whether it's day, afternoon, nighttime. I appreciate you all for listening in on a little bit of dance history with me. I had a great time learning about George and his entire life. There was plenty that I definitely left out. One being one of my favorite works of his was probably Who Cares? It was just very different, I thought, for him. And it was something I don't think... I still haven't seen it in its entirety. And I'd love to see it performed. But it was just very different. And it was so... So George, <laughs> I thought. So definitely take a look. There's a lot of performances that he did that the New York City Ballet has performed. There's clips and things on YouTube that you can find. And the sources that I'll leave in the show notes below... I'll make sure there's one source that has a list of all of his works throughout the decades that he worked on. I hope you were able to take something away from this episode, and I hope you can find some parallels between your own experience and George Balanchine's legacy and the way that he experienced dance. I certainly have. And yeah, thank you so much for being here. I look forward to making more dance history content, and I look forward to hearing from you guys. If you could, before you leave the podcast, on whatever podcasting platform you're listening to this on, if you could just leave an honest review, I would greatly appreciate it, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Have a beautiful day, everyone, and I'll see you next time. Also, last little note, be sure to connect with me, and the Dance Sessions podcast on the Dance Sessions podcast um, Instagram page, as well as my own Instagram. It is just Chris McCartan, so C-H-R-I-S-M-C-C-A-R-T-I-N, and follow there for new content, for new episodes, and I'm going to try to get better about posting. Uh, Social media and I are old friends, so not as uh, hip and up to date I'm a bit of an old old spirit when it comes to that but I will definitely try my best so and I always answer my DMs so let me know if you have any questions that I can answer or anything that you guys want to hear of uh, send me messages about who your favorite dancers and choreographers are and I'll be happy to uh, research and look them up for any future episodes thanks guys